Welcome to The Edge from Bantam Tools, our podcast about designers, educators, and businesses exploring the frontiers of digital fabrication. I'm Bree Pettis. And I'm Zach Dunham. In today's episode, we're continuing on our San Francisco kick at Other Lab, where we sit down with the 3D FabLite team to talk about the world of industrial laser cutters. We're here at Other Lab with Joel and Ramya of 3D FabLite, and you two work with lasers. Yes. True. That is true. <laughs> How do you not wake up in the morning and say things like a mad scientist, crazy evil superhero living in a volcano and not shout like, lasers. lasers. <laughs> I do. I don't know what wrong with We do do that during testing. So we run the machine without the cover on. And just to make sure no one else is there, we're like, we're firing the laser. <laughs> 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 yes. And I know Saul, and I know bicycles are made out of round things. True. And I know your machine takes round things, fires lasers at them, and destroys particles in such a way that you can make bicycle components. Is 3D FabLite the ultimate bicycle fabrication tool? Is that the dawn of 3D FabLite? Uh, that is the historical origin of 3D <laughs> FabLite. And Saul has used that machine to build his four-person bicycle, which, if you haven't seen, is quite striking. Saul Griffith, as you'll recall from the last episode, is the founder of Other Lab, where 3D FabLite was born. Joel and Ramya showed us this bike, which is pretty and a bit of a clown car of a bike, given its length in terms of its sheer length uh, and also beauty. But yeah, the, the, he had a coherent meta-beam laser, a CO2 laser, and he worked with the guy who designed that machine, Matthew Bai, to put a rotary onto that machine to try making bicycles. And that was sort of Saul and Matthew meeting. This became the sort of foundation of 3D FabLite. We ended up writing a grant proposal to do a metal laser cutter with a rotary to DARPA, mm -hmm. which we did. It was not uh, intended for bicycle making exclusively, but that is a de facto use of it. Wait, what was the original grant? Original grant was uh, it's an unusual DARPA project uh, where they decided that it would be good to have more recruits be like MacGyver. And so the number of participants, the Fab Foundation from MIT, Georgia Tech, a couple of others, other lab, we were the ones who proposed doing a metal laser cutter, so more of like a tool building exercise, as well as some content to help get people into how to use machines. And so we actually had an other mill uh, that we were doing circuit boards for, and we were developing this machine, so we came up with some like gears and pulleys and things that you could make on the machine, as well as some design principles of how you would you know, assemble them together, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so we shipped several machines and we shipped our kit of parts and then we spun out the company. And I should say, this is not an uncommon trajectory for a company coming out of other lab. Bantam Tools has a similar origin story. Explain this machine first, because you said rotary, so it sounds like there's a fourth axis. Yeah. Yeah, so at FabLite, we're making an industrial metal laser cutter for sheet and tube cutting. So tube laser cutters are traditionally like $500,000 minimum. So we're really trying to bring the cost down of these machines and get people to make things out of tubes and sheet metal and just fabricate. Can you give a quick explanation of like the field of laser cutter CO2 versus fiber and Galvo versus 
sort of flatbed, like some basic vocabulary for people who aren't fully into laser, laser space the way that you guys are. So CO2 lasers versus fiber lasers, that's where we are right now. CO2 laser, I say, is kind of like the old cathode ray television. It's like usually filled with gas and you excite the gas and that's what creates the laser. Fiber laser is diode based, so it's more like your laser pointer. And I say it's sort of like your flat screen TVs versus the you know, cathode ray tubes in that they are more efficient, they're lower power, uh, and the diodes are actually, you know, they sh shoot into a thing called a gain fiber, which is essentially like a fiber optic cable that gets excited. So instead of the gas, CO2, it's the fiber that gets excited. And then uh, for CO2 lasers, it, you usually have to shoot the beam through the machine, bouncing off mirrors and stuff. And so you have to keep the mirrors clean and aligned, etc. For us, we also have a fiber optic cable that we call the delivery fiber. You know, so it's different from the fiber of the fiber laser, but a delivery fiber that goes straight to the head, so it's lower maintenance and it all just sort of works better. And so uh, that's CO2 versus fiber. And then you talk about galvanometers. You know, galvanometer, how to explain a galvanometer? It's essentially like a little magnet that controls like a mirror that lets you move a laser beam around really, really fast, and it's great for engraving and stuff. Or laser light shows. Or laser light shows, exactly, that's correct. <laughs> that is correct. And so instead, we have more traditional XY gantry, we call it, you know, it's like what you'd expect on a plotter or, you know, those kinds of machines. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we have, as you say, a fourth axis for doing rotation. We can put a tube in and cut square, rectangle, as well as round tubes. And one important distinction of the CO2 versus fiber is that the fiber laser that we're using, the wavelength is absorbed really well by metals. So we can cut things like steel, stainless steel, brass, bronze, even things like copper, which are traditionally very reflective and it's hard to cut without tons of power going into the sheet. Gotcha. The fiber laser, just to give you perspective, our machine essentially runs on a 110 volt 20 amp outlet. So that's like a hair dryer worth of power. And we can cut, we have cut up to quarter inch steel with that. So what? If you take all the hot <laughs> air from a hair dryer and you focus it down to a fraction of a human hair, you can actually melt through thick stuff. That's incredible. I mean, most people I think who are not familiar with fiber lasers think about lasers as cutting acrylic. Mm -hmm or cutting like eighth inch plywood, or maybe even quarter inch plywood, whoa. And when you get to metal, lasers that cut metal, you're at a whole nother level. And I go to that $500,000 extreme when I go to like, oh, you can cut metal, you're like, oh, you've invested a house worth of money into a machine. But that's not what I see downstairs here, something more accessible. Yeah, it's just the physics. I mean, it's weird that we can cut metal so well. As Rami said, like it absorb the metal absorbs the energy from our laser beam very well. Non-metals like plastic and wood and even cardboard do not absorb it very well. In our early testing, we tried cutting uh, a piece of cardboard with our laser and it burned only the top surface. It didn't even cut through cardboard and yet oh, wow. it will cut through copper and steel. So this is the wavelength? Changes that or? Right, it's the wavelength. It seems so counterintuitive. <laughs> yeah, you're like, yeah, 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 stainless steel, no problem. But cardboard, yeah, it's, that's going to be hard. Yeah, you that's going to be really... Yeah, I think we had a piece of masking tape on some metal, just like, like a label left over, and it didn't even cut that. <laughs> so it's really specialized. Yeah. For metal. It's for metal fabrication. Why are these machines $500,000 in an industrial setting? Is it because someone 
has the the hold on the the market like that? And it's hard to say. It's a mix. I mean, historically, there is a certain, you know, as you said earlier, it's lasers, <laughs> and so there's a certain margin for that uh, right. capability. But uh, the so fiber historically, yes, there has been. I think less availability from multiple sources for good CO2 lasers, mm -hmm. and that has kept the price higher. Mm -hmm. Fiber lasers, because it's diode-based, the technology is more widely distributed, and the price has been coming down, and the reliability has been going up. How many machines are out in the wild? We're supposed to say this on the radio? I can say dozens. Cool. Cool. Heading towards hundreds. There you go. <laughs> Rapidly approaching hundreds. Thousands. Should we, um, should we go downstairs and see the machine? It's down here. Let's see if it runs. Going back into the fab space here, and there is the fab, light. the fab light. Here's the fab light. It's sort of the size of two six-foot tables stacked on top of each other. Yeah, we say it's not desktop size, it is the desk it size. It is the desk. <laughs> I'm glad that you're not That's... calling it a desktop machine. <laughs> no, it is not a desktop machine. And the, the build volume in there is significant. How big of a flat thing can you make? It's two foot by four foot sheets. It's a little bit bigger, 25 by 50 technically. Tubes are held in these cones here, but in the new machine we have chucks okay. with a pass-through mm -hmm. so yep. that uh, we, here we're grabbing it from the ID yep. and there we're grabbing it from the outside diameter, OD. Okay. I know viewers can't see this, but this is essentially a drawer that pulls out to let you load material. Uh -huh. Then you push it in and... And this is, the, there's a green window here. I assume that's protecting us from yeah. losing our eyesight. So the green window is pretty prominent for all fiber lasers because it's, I think there's like one supplier in Europe that has this material that absorbs this wavelength uh -huh. of laser. This is the interface done by oh, Rami. Oh, really nice. Oh, nice. Touchscreen. So it brings it up, you can preview the file, and it'll give you a little 2D or 3D image of what it is that you're going to be cutting. So this is some kind of bracket. You can change the gas that you're using. We try to make most of our cuts work with air because it fits our whole affordability mm -hmm. idea. You know, pretty much 100 PSI for eighth inch material and below. And if you're gonna cut thicker, then you should have higher pressure, maybe up to 150 or even higher with nitrogen. And then you have full control over, your, over the process. What was the frequency thing? If you go back here, this is, this is like a summary okay. of the cut process. Okay. So it's gonna go one inch per second, 100% power, uh, 2,000 hertz, that's, uh, so we didn't really talk about the laser itself, but it's a pulsed fiber laser. Okay. This laser is 300 watts if it was on all the time, mm -hmm. continuously. Sure. But the maker of our laser, IPG, has this technology where they can pulse it 10 times the power mm -hmm. at 10% duty cycle. Cool. So it's on a fraction of the time, but it's much higher power. And so the, the frequency here is how many times is it going to fire per second? Gotcha. Here, let's try dry running a job. Oh, actually, it needs to jog over back a little bit. Maybe like four the... inches? What do you mean? The material is actually... Oh, I see. The bed is this really jagged, uh, sort of widely spaced bed. What's the design, what's the thinking behind the design for the bed in that regard? Minimizes the stuff that you're gonna laser. Yeah, so with honeycomb, that gets eaten up really quickly because of all yeah. the contact points. Why does everybody use it then? It uh, seems like ubiquitous, that design. This is more common in metal. Oh, okay. Uh, so essentially the nozzle 
of the cutting head uh -huh. and the material that you're cutting uh -huh. form a capacitor. Uh -huh. And we translate the measured capacitance into a distance. So the closer you get, the lower the capacitance. And so we have to ground the metal that we're cutting in order to have it be those two sides of the capacitor plate. Got you. And so this bed arrangement gives us, you know, a couple of points of contact mm -hmm. and it just gets less destroyed. I don't actually yeah. know why they don't use it more on CO2. Huh. Maybe because, you know, if you're cutting something like cardboard or plastic, you don't really want these points jagging up into the, uh, into plastic. the material. Yeah. You know, but here, Metal's more robust. Just let me know when we're gonna fire the lasers. I wanna look. Okay, we're gonna fire the laser. You ready? <laughs> yeah. Sparks are flying. Those sparks are actually coming out the bottom of the plate. Yeah. So you can see the hole. People think the sparks on top look cool, but that indicates a bad cut to us. Because <laughs> it's not going all the way through. Because exactly, it's not cutting through. So we use that for some marketing purposes, but in general, it's a bad sign. Oh, okay, got you. <laughs> it's done. Fast. Yeah. Oh, the part fell down. Do not open until cut is complete. Uh, here it is. Oh, it's not very hot. It's a little warm. It's the same kind of thing where, like, the worse the cut, the hotter it is. When it cuts through, the energy goes into melting the metal blowing it out the back, and uh, not a lot is absorbed by the thing itself. The thicker it gets, it doesn't have that same laser cut smell. <laughs> How does it smell? That, uh... <laughs> How does it smell? We're jaded. I don't, I don't have the nose breeze into the, the watchmaking community and the watchmakers smell watches, so I don't have the, no <laughs> I don't have the nose for, for metals. One of the benefits of cutting metal versus plastic and wood is we don't have the fumes. Yeah. That's awesome. That's so cool. Anything we missed? Or? I mean, let's get a truck and load this up and take it away. Yeah. <laughs> we can sell you a new one. You don't want this one. It's on wheels, so you could roll it right up. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the concept, yeah, it's on wheels. It comes in a crate with a ramp. Yep. The idea is you can roll it out of the crate, plug it into a 110-volt wall outlet, add your regular shop air, hook up the little dust collector vacuum, and cut Whatever you need. Off to the races. Yeah, exactly. We didn't actually end up walking off with a laser cutter that day, even though Bree really wanted to. We were just visiting San Francisco and in town to take in the breadth of the creative tech community, from laser cutters to drones. When we return, we'll hear more from Joel and Ramya about 3D Fablight users. But first, brace yourself for a bit of a non sequitur as we visit the SF Drone School to speak with Eddie Codell and Werner Vonstein and learn how digital fabrication tools and a fair amount of duct tape have launched the DIY Racing Drone League. If you're into drones, we're in like the, the secret bunker of crazy research cutting edge, potentially life-threatening stuff right here now. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the history of the space and then what you've got going on here. Um, basically where we are is we are tucked in the back of the old formal naval, naval training facility of Treasure Island. Um, this was basically a training facility for avionics and fire suppression, decontamination, and all the good stuff the Navy has to do and, and does. What is SF Drone School? What goes on here? Um, what we do is basically we're trying to get kids and adults to fly safe in the U.S. airspace using drones or autonomous aerial vehicles. 
and teach them um, to do it safely, the baby steps from basically taking a drone in their hands and then get into the sky. So this is the place you could come to learn how to, how to fly drones and be yeah. legit. Yeah, correct. Fly it um, and actually build them because um, everything what goes up has to come down. And uh, basically, if you don't learn it properly, you will be ending up more repairing it than actually flying at the beginning. And so now, the, 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 the drones that I see in front of me are not DJI drones. Correct. What do we have going on? This is a different, this is a different category. <laughs> and these have the sticker on them, X-Class. What is X-Class? Well, let's also take a step back. I mean, so drone racing um, traditionally has been uh, smaller quadcopters. And this is all, you know people building their own as well, right? So but people would come up and make their own airframes, people can come out with their own motors, and, and there's a lot of research to figure out what works best. The flight controllers have gone through an evolution as well. You know, individual pilots tune their flight controllers so that the, that the um, <coughs> excuse me, that the drones fly in a certain way. But traditionally, these are smaller drones, 450 miller, 450 class drones, maybe 650 at the, at the, at the most. But uh, X-Class was sort of the first... Um, kind of racing league or group of people to come together to do these much larger scale drones, ultimately for spectating purposes, because to go to a live event and race smaller drones, it's interesting, but it's like seeing a bunch of flies zipping around, and you yeah. can't really see them, they right? You know, yeah, exactly, especially yeah. during the day. Yeah. So the bigger drones, they, they're louder, they, um, you know, they're obviously bigger, you can put smoke on them, and you just see, you know, trails, and, they're, and of course, most importantly, when they crash, they crash much more spectacular. <laughs> yeah, they don't roll, they just basically break in the ground, clack, or they just... And so in some ways, it kind of does follow the, the kind of like pro-racing NASCAR kind of uh, yeah. circuit, yeah. where you've got people who are, or teams of people who build drones, uh, and they usually are, have a pilot they're working with. Oftentimes, it's the pilot themselves who's doing a lot of the builds. And while we were at the SF Drone School, one such pilot, Reiner Weber from Team Von Drone, happened to be there. He's been learning from his crashes and milling out custom components for his drone as he goes. I've had a hard time with keeping the bamboo itself. Um, then we went to polycarbonate. Polycarbonate's a really nice material. Um, it's really easy to work with. The price point's really nice, and you can put it on most machines to, to cut it out. I have a question for you. How has your design development changed o over time based on your flying and crashing? Well, when you have multiple crashes and you see the same thing breaking at the same area, you go, okay, do we want it to break there or do you want to change that energy to somewhere else? So we decided that having a hub system was the fortress. And so we made that the strongest things possible, and so the electronics would be inside, like hard to penetrate. Like it would be like a really weird rogue stick coming at you from the side at the right <laughs> angle to like puncture my board. And then we made the arms the sacrificial lamb. Right. So I make them out of aluminum so I can go to any hardware store. We had to see this X-Class drone in action. So Reiner took us across the street to an open field and gave us a demo. Now this is something I really want to respect like it is a piece of hardware thank you thank you yeah no it's it's taken me a while to get to the comfort level of being able to take off and be at one with it because um there's a part of me when it comes at me i'm still scared you know yeah. i ain't gonna lie i've always say stay behind the pilot because the pilot's the one that's always looking out for themselves so um noted, noted. we are yeah. all now moving behind you. right no, I'll, I'll step forward i'm just getting away but that's just... Whoa! So this thing just took off. How fast are we going now? Um, maybe like 20, but, you know, I'm going to... It just looks way faster, though. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> so that's full bore, right? 
Oh my God, he used to a barrel roll. And to give you a true front row seat, we actually strapped one of our mics to Reiner's drone. Hang on. So on the, on the edge. No, we're on the edge here. So we'll just do this. That's in. That's in. That's All in. Right. <laughs> Don't fly like a madman. All right. Okay, but that's, oh, come on. <laughs> Batman's fun. Batman right? mode. Safety officer here. Right, that's his job. <laughs> That's gonna sound good. <laughs> you can learn more about the SF Drone School by visiting sfdroneschool.com and learn more about X-Class Racing by visiting xclass.racing. Welcome back. This is The Edge from Phantom Tools. Like many manufacturers of digital fabrication machines, ourselves included, accessibility is at the center of 3D Fablight's mission. In one sense, accessibility is synonymous with price, and in another sense, it's about features like being able to simply plug it into a standard 110-volt outlet. However you couch this, it means the machine is reaching new audiences. I'm really curious, like, who are your customers and what are they making? So right now, I would say it's split between industry and education. So there are universities that have our machine, and there it's mostly prototyping, um, and then with industry, it's kind of hard to pin down one specific industry. We've had a stamping company that is switching over to soft tooling for a laser cutter. There's um, like a fireplace manufacturer that cuts tubes uh, and prototypes some of their models with it. We have a company that makes tags for pipes and stuff. Maybe you've noticed that like, you know, to identify what's flowing through the pipes. Oh, and yeah. so they had been buying blanks and engraving them and now they just use our machine to produce the blanks. We have a food service company. They make the stainless steel structures that you see behind the counter at McDonald's and stuff. So they've taken tube jobs that used to take 15 minutes each to do by hand and put it on our machine. And now it's like a one to two minute job. When we split it up, I sort of think about it in terms of three categories. There's like the R&D section slash education section of people who, they're not really looking for an ROI on the machine itself right? Either because it speeds things up or it's educational or whatever. They're looking for learning how to have a superpower. A superpower, yeah, and to get their lead times down. So if you're sending laser cutting out, it might take a week or two to get a part back. And if it's wrong, it's, so they just want to shorten their lead times. Again, harder to quantify. Then there's the ROI people who just want their first laser, you know, either because they're doing something manually or because they want to bring things in-house. And then there's like this third group of people who have million dollar machines, but don't want to cut into production and don't want to have to wait even for production to get their parts done. And so like that fireplace manufacturer is an example. They bought it for tube prototyping of their fireplace burners, and now they use it like the office printer. We did an interview with uh, Wazer, this desktop water jet company. Yeah, and they there was this whole thing of like, you know, when they first launched, they're like, oh yeah, we're gonna do like stained glass mosaics and like all these Etsy people are gonna get this machine. And then they started going to trade shows and it was all of these like Fortune 500 companies that needed, like as you put it, it's the machine that's out of the cage. Like they have the, the big brother sort of water jet cutter, but no one really has access to it except for like one person in the whole company. And so they needed a tool that was, was, the, was the, the, the office printer, as you put it. Yeah, so we are meeting that need. And you know, because we do tubes and sheets, uh, people, sort of buy it for one or the other and then, you know, kind of get the other one for free and that's when things really get interesting. <laughs> I'm, I'm battling my desire to ask a question with my desire to just 
have one, right? Like, I feel <laughs> that as you're talking about it, I can tell like, oh, this is something that unlocks, it unlocks the ability to, to do laser cutting with, with, with metal. I've seen what a laser cutter can do for people with plastics and wood and what it unlocks for them. It's oftentimes like the easiest, most accessible fabrication tool on the block. And being able to have that for metal and have something that's way more precise than like a plasma cutter, say, mm -hmm. just starts making fabrication much more interesting in the metal space. Yeah, our machine does very well with thinner stuff. So, I mean, it can do thicker stuff. It's not really its main wheelhouse. So it's a nice complement to a water jet, and uh, it does very precise stuff. So it's cleaner than plasma. It's got a smaller, you know, beam size or kerf than a water jet. So people have been doing interesting stuff. Yeah. Are there is there a bicycle manufacturer that's using it for for frame design? Other lab. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we do have interest from uh, bicycle manufacturers. They're kind of already at scale, though. Like that's a mature field. Yes, I mean the hand-built bicycle people. We have interest oh. from motorcycle people, modders. Oh yeah. People who mod their cars. Sure, the hot riders. Yeah. People who work with. I mean, people like if you could not nail down one market, what would it be? It's like metal cutting. <laughs> yeah, sure. sure. <laughs> Yeah, I guess we get asked the same question a lot, too. Yeah. CNC, yeah. And finally, the question you're probably burning for us to ask, what does this thing cost? I would imagine that a machine like that has a range, uh, the cost is in a range depending on the application of the end user. Can you give us a sort of feel of how much it would cost to have a fab light in, 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 in your fabrication facility or educational facility? Yeah. So in the U.S., uh, it ranges from around 60 to around $110,000 for the range of machines that we offer. It varies for different markets. Um, and, you know, there's other costs involved, but we've tried to make it as affordable as we can. And we're like, you know, we're pretty, we're competitive with imported machines, which a lot of people like that we're domestic versus imported. You're super competitive against the like half million dollar machine. We're very competitive. You know, there there are quarter million dollar machines also, and uh, it's those are those are more affordable than half a million. Half a million is for like the tube cutters and up. You can get a sheet cutter for two hundred. Um, so we've tried to price it affordably. Again, we you know do we leave money on the table? Some, but you know we're trying to expand access. Market. We're trying to build a new market essentially for metal cutters. Mm -hmm that has not existed before. I would imagine like there's these machines, like the press brakes and stuff of flat steel, and that this would be like, you'd put it right next to your steel bending operation to make boxes or components or things that needed bent steel. Yeah, we think that most everything can be broken down into sheets and tubes. And once you have those two building blocks, you can make lots of different structures. And with a simple break, even just a manual one with a single bend, you can make Lots of things. Gotcha. This goes back to what you were saying earlier about like wanting to get back to the, the core building blocks of how this machine could be used in the educational setting. Yeah. Neat. Just the design language around that. Sheets and tubes. Sheets and tubes. It's been great having you on the show. I'm, yeah, I'm just. <laughs> Breeze sold. I'm really twitching. <laughs> That's what you need Thank you for listening to The Edge, the Bantam Tools podcast. Check out all the show notes and the links at bantamtools.com slash the edge. Make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.